Hello and welcome to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and this is the show that hopes to make your day a little bit slower, a little bit calmer and more contented. Today I'm chatting to Catherine May. I really think that we are now burning out from years of presenting ourselves as not just like fine, but super fine and everything's beautiful and everything's glamorous. We're only achieving, like we're never processing or reflecting or integrating. And if you look at the way the year works, there are times when we're clearly supposed to be growing and times when we're supposed to be drawing inwards and letting everything sink through again. And both of those are equally valid. And we only really want to talk about one. Catherine is an international best-selling author and podcaster. I first happened to find out about Catherine's beautiful books because I was gifted her book, Wintering, which I think has happened a lot with this book because it feels really personal, really intimate to read because it's all about those times in life where you know you need to retreat and you sort of step away from your own life a little bit and you get really quiet and you get really inquisitive. And that is something, well, there's certainly moments that I'm always looking for. And Catherine's new book, Enchantment, is all about experiencing awe. We had this chat remotely just the other week and we covered so many big topics. Everything from the importance of cultivating quiet moments that exist just for you to why we maybe find it harder to be wrong than we used to. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I can't wait for this episode. I hope you love it too. Here's the show. Catherine, so lovely to meet you, kind of. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm all right, thank you. Yeah, I've, uh, I think this is the kind of podcast where you can say, like, I've had a rough couple of months and uh, I'm here, I'm upright. So sometimes that's like the best thing you can be, isn't it? Is upright, I think. It's, it's yeah, <laughs> it's definitely um, a cause for celebration, I think. Yes. And now this is absolutely the space where we can talk about all of that because when we first logged on, uh, you sort of apologetically were thanking us for letting us do this on Zoom. You know, we're just happy to have you on. So whatever works for our guests is is the most important thing. Ah, oh, well, it's a pleasure. I'd have loved to have come and visited you in your lovely little studio, but um, not this Another time, time, unfortunately. Another yeah. time you can. So how are you <laughs> feeling physically at the moment? <sighs> not amazing. Um, I've had a flare up of a chronic illness that I've had for a long time. Um, and of course, it's just come at the wrong time. So I have been having to follow my own advice and doing loads of resting and just lots of gentle kindness to myself. It's 
very, very hard to practice, isn't it? To... It's the hardest. And even though, like you just said, you know, you spend a lot of time talking about it. I certainly spend a lot of time trying to learn about it more than anything. And I still so often don't do it. And just last week during half term, I got some gnarly stomach bug and I was oh, sort of that's forced. Going around. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was forced to sit on the sofa because it was one of those ones where when you stood up you're like oh no this is not good um in any way and I actually ended up really enjoying it and I've tried to keep to that level of gentleness since I had the stomach bug and it feels alien to me but I I'm sort of relaxing into it and it's um it's needed put it that way it's a teacher that's the thing yeah and it shows us how little control we actually have and it hopefully teaches us some compassion to other people who live with this stuff all the time, you know. But I think I think it's sometimes good to find your limits, honestly. We are not eternally energetic. Um, health is not always available to us. But there's a lot of life that, that gets lived in illness too. And that's kind of invisible, I think. Without a doubt. It's a beautiful point and obviously something that you've talked a lot about in your amazing book, Wintering, that I was actually gifted by a friend. I think Wintering is one of those books that certainly got passed around and gifted from person to person. It felt like a real treat to receive your book. And I just loved it. It was a real sigh of relief reading it. Mm. And something that I still think about all the time. For anyone that hasn't read wintering, can you tell us about your definition of, of that word? Yeah, sure. So wintering is a book about the seasons when we're metaphorically out in the cold. Um, so it's just those times when we feel like we've fallen through the cracks and that might be an illness, physical or mental. Um, it happens a lot when people have big life changes like divorces or losing a job. And I, and I think sometimes we're just visited by winters because we need to change and it's like change in process. But when those winters come, we need to withdraw for a while and take care of ourselves and, and, and we enter into this process of metamorphosis, I, I would say, but I, in the book, I'm really careful to say that that process is really painful. And on one hand, we've got to stop ignoring wintering and, and making the people who go through it feel isolated because it's so normal. But that doesn't mean to say it's like a really cheerful time and you can just make the best of it. And, you know, <laughs> mm. um, so, yeah, that's uh, but at the same time, it's a book about my love of winter um, and actually how beautiful winter is as a season and how we can learn from the way plants and animals behave during that time. So, yeah, it's a, uh, it, I, I say it's actually been a bit of a pyramid scheme, you know, like people buy it for themselves <laughs> and buy it for a friend. <laughs> it's, it really is. It, that is the exact, exact feeling, but in, but in the most beautiful way, because it's helped so many people and really brought to the forefront that notion that we can't bloom all year round. And I think it's not promoted on a cultural level that we're allowed to have that sort of retreat. And like you say, it's not all sort of cosy, hygge hibernation. Hygge, hygge, hygge. I never know. I think it's um, hygge, but I don't know. I have to say it a lot and I still get it wrong, so don't ask yeah, me. Yeah, woolly socks and candles. <laughs> um, socks. But it's not, it's not all that. Like you say, it can be deeply painful, but absolutely normal and often integral. But I think, especially due to how perhaps social media works, the digital world, 
we're led to believe we've got to be like living life to the max at all mm. times and they're really dangerous um turns of phrase i think yeah yeah and i think that's it's really interesting isn't it that burnout seems to be the word of the year so far this year um and i you know it's what i wrote about an enchantment as well and i really think that we are now burning out from years of presenting ourselves as not just like fine but super fine and everything's beautiful and everything's glamorous we're only achieving like we're never processing or reflecting or integrating and if you look at the way the year works there are times when we're clearly supposed to be growing and times when we're supposed to be drawing inwards and letting everything sink through again and both of those are equally valid and we only really want to talk about one if anything it's more valid because I think what I've learned from doing this podcast alone is that I don't know what the percentage would be but a high percentage of growth and learning comes from adversity I don't know what you learn from achieving stuff I'm trying to think of my own perception of achievement in my own life what have I learned I don't know people no. blow smoke up your ass when you <laughs> achieve things probably <laughs> but actually yeah. looking at the painful parts of my life oh my god they've built me as a human and it, you know the emphasis like you say isn't on those times at all no and I oh, I, I think a lot of things but <laughs> I, <laughs> I do think that we need to have a conversation about wisdom as the ultimate attainment, really. That's that's what we get from those painful times. And that's what we pass on. Like, it's so reciprocal, this process of suffering and coming through suffering and offering something to the next person who's going through it. And yeah, you're right. Like, we don't we don't gain that in happy times. And in fact, I mean, the more I've thought about it, the more I've thought about how people often suffer during happy times as well and times they're achieving. It's not what we think it is quite often. I mean, look how often successful people are addicted to something or have kind of enormous crashes or, or it's destructive of their relationships. I'm not sure that happiness is the positive emotion we think it is on its mm. own, like as, as, a, as a sort of single goal um yeah I think that's it when we're trying to attain it that's where we're sort of really missing the point altogether and because I loved in wintering where you were talking about a sense of feeling very at home in Mm. that time and I don't know whether that you would class that as contentment yeah I love the word contentment actually I think I'd rather be contented than that kind of high as a kite happy Same. that we so often model in. Actually, you should rename yourself the contentment place. <laughs> <laughs> we should. I think I like happy place because it's quite loaded. It, it, it's really it's meaningful, like, isn't it? Some yeah. people hate it. Some people love it. It, it has so many different connotations. But I agree. <laughs> contentment. This is probably a later in life discovery for me that I don't want to chase. I wanted that roller coaster before. Massive highs. I didn't even mind the crashes. I just want contentment these days. Mm. That is certainly the word of the day for me. Yeah, just that feeling of being safe and level and uh, of like gentleness flowing around you almost. I that's yeah, I think it is an aging thing. I think we just get fed up of the extremes. They're so exhausting the extremes. Yeah, they're bloody exhausting. What about <laughs> um <laughs> what about, you know, although 
you've sort of professed that lovely contentment within that phase of wintering. I'm sure they're naturally, like all natural cycles, comes a time where you feel ready to move out of that phase yeah. into spring. Is that something you believe you can cultivate or something you have to wait for organically? I I think a little bit of both, but I, I think one of the things about the way we don't embrace wintering is that we're kind of trying to avoid feeling the full spectrum of feelings that comes at those, those times. So, you know, when those big hits of sadness arrive, instead of spending some time with them and realising that they're actually quite safe if we acknowledge them, we push them away. And I think that actually delays our healing. And so actually, when you let yourself be with your sadness, your regret, your bitterness, your paranoia, your anger, like all of that horrible cocktail of emotions that come during those times, you actually get a chance to process them and to like you're you're experiencing the fullness of your humanity when you do that. You, you cannot be a person that only feels one like very sanitized set of emotions what I've observed over and over again is that when people like give themselves the space to go through that process, they come out of the other side and they don't just come out of the other side. OK, they come out of the other side, like really full of mission, <laughs> you know? like that sense of having a purpose to go back into life with. And I yeah, I don't. I don't think that the risk is that by properly wintering, we get stuck there because it's too nice. I think it's always vile enough that we want to move on. Yeah. Um, I think the real risk is that we get stuck when we don't winter and, and we just keep reproducing until we drop. Oh, I totally agree with you. I totally agree. Because I think it's that old adage of, you know, whatever you resist persists, but also... I guess one of the reasons that we don't allow ourselves to winter is because, yeah, certainly we're afraid to get stuck. But I think also there is this sense that um, there's something wrong with us. We're flawed to have these yeah. feelings. We've laid the only one it's ever happened wrong. to. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and I'm such a seriously flawed human that only I could be feeling so rock bottom and down and awful and certainly motivating for me in lots of my work to break that myth uh, because <laughs> I totally personally understand the importance and have experienced that growth of hitting rock bottom, whatever you want to call it, having a big period of wintering where I guess you, you get to have a chance to really um, rethink your whole life and the world, you know, if you want to get really existential, yeah, really break thinking. everything apart. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think having a good think about things is a really lovely thing to do. And I mean, like, you know, we're both creative people, like one of the th things that creative people are expert in is having a good think about stuff too much and, so <laughs> I don't know there's never enough thinking right I love thinking um, <laughs> but like thinking has to go in loads of different directions and find all the corners of the subject before you find the right bit and that takes time and space like there's there's just no hurrying this horrible work of being a human and this glorious work of being a human like they both intertwined like DNA I, I'm always looking for the spaces now that I can rest in and that I can really deliberately reflect and and just keep thinking just keep making that space thinking and feeling 
And I guess it's also for us collectively to not feel scared to have that retreat and to not be constantly seen because I think that's again I mean there's some people that won't um, fall into that trap at all but I think the vast majority of us especially who use social media feel that if we're not seen then we we don't exist we don't exist (laughs) or if we don't show something then it didn't have meaning or worth because somebody didn't like it I'm certainly trying to seek multiple moments that are never seen and are very private and perhaps something that I might journal around or just sort of let live in my head really like we used to in the 80s and 90s (laughs) just being there like we we have to relearn to be there and you know as much as everyone else I'm like putting stuff on the internet all the time and I love being on Instagram and chatting to people and I love taking really beautiful photos of things that I'm experiencing but also you have to keep something for yourself and Instagram is very bad at capturing the messy moments of life and the kind of complicated ones. And it's a visual medium and not everything looks that nice. And I I really worry about, I mean, it used to be just people in our industries that were always trying to capture themselves doing something like that was what we had to do. I worry about how destructive it is when everybody is presenting themselves having an experience rather than just having the experience just being in a place just moving through a landscape just being with a friend it doesn't need to be presented It, it we actually need to just go back to experiencing yeah, I mean, well, this leads very nicely onto your new book, Enchantment, which <laughs> yes. is... Which, is which has a real, <laughs> There you go. You've led us there very nicely, Catherine. Um, but it is very much about that, having having that connection, really, isn't it? Because the, the subtitle of this book is Reawakening Wonder in an Exhausted Age. You know, we've already touched on exhaustion, this mass collective exhaustion that I'm sure the majority of people listening to this will sort of nod along to, this burnout... Um, a sense of fear. You talk about your own experience of this feeling like an electric toothbrush that's run out of charge, which I think is a perfect <laughs> analogy for how we're all feeling. What do you think's gotten us there? Is it as simple as the speed of the modern world? It's as simple and as complicated as that. I mean, I, you know, the pandemic, I don't think, I think a lot of us feel like we've processed it and it's over. And I don't think it's anything like over on a physiological level, but also on an emotional level, that we have been changed by that time. And in in lots of ways, I think we're feeling that speed more than we used to because we had a little bit of a break from it for for some of us. And and meeting that speed again is like, you know, selecting the wrong gear in your car. But yes, there's a longer, I think there's a longer history of it than that as well, that since this century began and like I just remember the millennium coming and and everything felt so hopeful and I felt like my generation was in the ascendancy and like my attitude to the world was in the ascendancy we were gonna be kinder and more inclusive and everything was like full of optimism and excitement and really great change and we were like shifting out these old values and whoa I mean weren't we wrong I mean we (laughs) (laughs) we're so wrong um there has been this creep back of a world that we just hoped we'd repelled and actually it's come back harder and stronger because of the the opportunities made for it by the internet and I think 
we're suffering from something like a, a sort of dislocation, a sense that we've lost our homes. And one of the things that fed into like my thinking when I was writing Enchantment was how often people were telling me that they didn't feel comfortable going home anymore because there was so much intergenerational conflict, you know, that they'd they knew that they would end up arguing with their family about certain issues and that that suddenly felt intractable um, and it didn't feel like a an argument that felt safe anymore. You know, it didn't feel like a kind of good-natured, like, disagreement over roast dinner, but instead, like, felt something much more wrenching and toxic. And I actually, I think that's a huge underestimated part of this, the level of conflict we're in all the time. Yeah. What do yeah. you think has accentuated that? Because I think about this all the time, that, mm. you know, people's values seem to be at the forefront of conversation a lot of the time. And like you say, we might have been able to have discussions, even if I think back to like the 90s when my grandparents were still alive and I'd be perhaps having chats that were, <laughs> we, you know, we came from very different points of view. We, we all know um, those but chats. But it was, yeah. all, you know, you'd have those sorts yeah. of conversations. But I, it feels like... I don't know if this is the media ramping things up and causing uh, this division and if it's a conscious thing that's, that's um, I don't know, sometimes I get really sinister in my head about it and think, is this about control? Is this about us being more easily manipulated if we're in some sort of divisive yeah. world Silos. where everybody's coming from totally yeah. different angles? And then sometimes I'm a bit more optimistic and think, oh, no, that, that couldn't. That couldn't be possible, but a lot of the time I think it, it could be because it feels yeah. so prevalent. And like you say, people, especially over the pandemic, have really sort of drifted and friendships have broken down and, and all sorts. And it's uh, it's a terrible shame. You know, I think, mm. again, if you look to the start of the pandemic, it was all about community and helping each other out. And that switched. And that was very, yeah. you know, we media didn't hold on to that for long, did we? No, it was awful. <laughs> that made me so sad. That was totally, mm. you know... Well, there was lots of driving forces behind that one, but it just felt disastrous because it felt collective at one point and like we were in something yeah. together and we wanted to help each other out. But I think we've been left with a hangover of divisiveness. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I, there's lots of things going on and I think you're right. I mean, I think we are now consuming separate media, which means that when we come across the other person's point of view, it's much more of a shock than it once would have been. And I also think that like some of us on like on one side of the debate have been gaining in consciousness about other groups and been really carefully thinking about our own position within that and how we can improve it and how we can be more inclusive and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas the other set of media has been about, you know, reacting against any any move towards diversity and that clash, therefore, becomes a lot bigger and an and offence comes into it much quicker. But I also, th I also wonder about whether we're meeting face to face or not. And I say this as like a very solitary person who prefers not to go out if she can possibly avoid it. <laughs> Same. But I, I often think back about, you know, sitting in pubs in the late, late 90s and arguing with people about stuff in quite a like in quite an explosive way but it was okay because that was like expected and disagreement was 
normal within that. And at some point, one of you would go, oh, come on, let's go and get another drink. And it, and it would be over. You hadn't come to any like common understanding of the subject. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you had you had been in conflict and you'd solved the conflict. And I think that the way we're communicating now means that we're often not bringing that conflict full circle to the moment that you go, okay, let's move on. We'll agree to disagree. You you know, can I buy another drink? Yeah, that is, in fact, the way that our media set up, it's much easier to go, I'm blocking you now. I'm never speaking to, to you again. You do not exist for me. And that's not maybe our best instinct. No, because we're dehumanising people because we can't, we're not making eye contact. We don't have that. We're not seeing someone's humanness because, of course, I think with any issue which is debatable, it's never as clear cut as you're only discussing that issue. My understanding from having interviewed thousands of people over the years is that there's there's issues, but there's also personal experience that's going to back up all of your thoughts and um and values due to your own lived experience. And that's the bit that I think's being missed when we're just discussing things online and headlines are blowing up and causing all sorts of disgruntled online forums and debates. It's it's a real mess. And I think you're so right. Many of us feel very... Um, I feel sort of electrocuted from that on mass uh, yeah, bombardment. It's really physical, isn't it? It feels yeah. it feels threatening, like physical threat. Yeah, it does. Our bodies I, react you know, to it totally. I think a lot mm. of the time I try and curate what I am reading, watching, listening to in a way that I believe gives me a diverse understanding of lots of different issues going on. But equally, I don't listen to things that I know are going to leave me feeling electrocuted. That's yeah, not yeah. what I'm seeking. Yeah. Totally. Do you? I'm interested to know what you think about this as well. But do you think we we find it harder to be wrong than we used to? Yes, very much mm. so. I think, I think we do. I think it's. Um, I'm sure it's never been easy for any generation no. to <laughs> say sorry or to Oops. back down. Yeah, or or to even say, do you know what? I see your point and have that. You know, uh, compromise or well, not even compromise. Of, you know, meeting in the middle to some extent. I do think that's probably always been a problem, but it's, I think it's harder today, but understandably due to cancel culture existing. I think everybody mm. is so scared they're going to be told, you're wrong, you cannot have that opinion, and actually you've effed up so bad, you are yeah, now no yeah, longer yeah. existing, goodbye. I think everyone's so scared of that that rather than any of us step back and go oh okay you know and I've, mm. obviously we, I'm a human I've been in this situation where I've acted um inappropriately been defensive rather than surely not saying <laughs> of course uh rather than saying oh yeah I see what you mean because I think we're all terrified we're terrified mm. of cancel culture I yeah and I like any mistake is so visible now, you know, like a, a slightly misinformed opinion or something that gives offence. Um, it's it's so visible. And I wonder if it's making us too cautious about bringing clashing views together. Yes, um, it is. I, at the same time, like I love the way that we've developed this concern about offending people and hurting people. Like I think... We maybe needed to do that a bit more, but there's a limit to how much you can know. 
if I'm honest. Like, you can't always predict everything that will upset people. I mean, I, I'm just thinking about the way we try try and control the language that people use to us now. You know, like, so it's quite common to see a post on Instagram that says, when someone's grieving, don't say this to them, say this to them. And I always think I can't possibly remember that in the moment or, you know, like a, in whatever situation. And, and I wonder if it makes me less likely to say anything at all. And, and like I, I feel like we've got to accept people getting it wrong and saying, oh, actually, I prefer not to use that language rather than saying, oh, they got my they got my approach wrong to me. And I was, yeah. a, you know, it wasn't perfect. It's and also hard, I think everybody's so different. One person might really, you know, let's look at the context of grief, find certain phrases uh, unhelpful or triggering, whereas other people would prefer a much more sort of upfront approach to discussing it. So I don't think, there are obviously, there's common sense to be applied to this conversation. Yeah. There are obviously, <laughs> be nice to people. You know? <laughs> yeah, be nice to people, don't use offensive language, don't discriminate, you know, that's yeah. my disclaimer. But I do think there has to be nuance involved depending on the person and what their experience is and, and how well you know them, etc. But I do agree, I think people are generally scared to make mistakes and that is then going to lead to a huge lack of growth for all of us because like we've already talked about the the mistakes are where the growth begins yeah I mean it's like look I'm autistic and I have preferred language around my autism um and so but I know that people get that you know they don't use my language to me all the time and I've got super comfortable with saying oh, actually, I prefer not to use that term. This is this is how I prefer to do it. And I always also now come with the disclaimer, like, it's, that won't be true of all autistic people either. Like, this is the way I describe it, you know. And I, I come with a fact sheet now. I don't know, you might have received my fact sheet or not, but I come with a fact sheet that just helps people to understand why I use the language I use. Because if you've not got an autistic person in your family or in your friendship group, there's no reason you'd have come across those issues before. And I need to be compassionate about that rather than annoyed because there was a point in my life when I didn't understand the issues behind that language either. And I used the words that I would now think were a bit wonky. So we're all learning and well, we're all teaching. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it's a real give and take, isn't it, of listening and learning and offering up those boundaries essentially as to what we're comfortable with or not. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I was very interested to read about your diagnosis because it was a bit later in life and I've had several friends, I think due to the awareness of neurodivergence, mm. there is, there's been a lot more late diagnosis in adulthood for um, a range of neurodivergence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I've had really great discussions with several friends who are in their 50s about how they've taken that diagnosis because it is a real process of... Well, it certainly was for them looking back at their whole life and piecing together puzzle parts, 
grieving a little bit about certain aspects of life. How how did you process that diagnosis? I wrote a book about it. That's how I process everything. Well, exactly. <laughs> a bloody great book on it. That's <laughs> that's exact. I mean, that is my approach to processing yeah. any, any feeling. Um, but I, yeah, I think all of the things you just said were true, really. Um, it's like a process of completely remaking your own story because suddenly loads of stuff makes sense and and I'd lived with this sense of dissonance throughout my whole life that I knew I wasn't the same as like the other girls in my class for example I knew my feelings ran differently I knew I was experiencing the world differently but there was I like you know I'm 45 when I was a kid, there is nothing that would have got me an autism diagnosis. Like it was not available. And if it had been from the people I know of my age who did get a diagnosis when they were younger, it was actually often quite catastrophic because of the way that they were treated and perhaps institutionalized or the things they were told about themselves and what their capabilities might have been. So, yeah, I when I realized it came all at once, you know, <laughs> I literally was driving in my car and heard a woman talking about being an, an autistic adult woman. And it was the first time I'd ever heard someone talk about that from the inside. And I was immediately like, oh, there I am. That's it. It was it was that instant. And then, yeah, you go you go through a lot of grief not grief about being autistic because I was like immediately grateful for that label which it's really hard for people to understand if they don't need it you know people are like why would you why would you want to call yourself that it's like because I am it and I need that understanding and I need other people to have that understanding but like grief for all the years that I just hated myself you know just completely hated myself for not being what I thought I should be for not feeling things as I thought I should not behaving as I thought I should for the fact that you know people didn't like me when I was growing up I couldn't make friends I couldn't connect and that was so painful and it led to like loads of different mental health problems as is really really common with you know late diagnosed autistic people and to work through that and go oh I was just different I was just different to the people and I needed different stuff and I never had the opportunity to meet my own needs it's grief but it's also catharsis (laughs) and if you can if the people around you let you it lets you make profound changes to your life profound profound changes to your life that let you for the first time articulate what you need and to live that it's an amazing amazing process I think that's one of the most brilliant things of the this sort of last 10 years is that the conversation around neurodivergence has just expanded to a level where you know brilliant people like yourself are writing about it talking about it but the understanding is there and it's being implemented in schools. I know it's obviously a, a slow, laborious process to get these things cemented into the yeah, educational system, yeah. but they're getting there. Yeah. And it's not, you know, I think previously, maybe when we were growing up, a child with neurodivergence would be in a different classroom, would be seen as distant or troublesome or a fidget or whatever it might be. 
and there's just uh, just a much better understanding and like you say having a label is a way to really understand who you are and the best ways to move through the world definitely and the, the amazing thing for me was that it immediately put me part of a, a community of other people with that same label and that sense of immediate recognition between us and I'd never had that before you know, like I'd never found a club or a group that I was comfortable in. And suddenly I was like, oh, I've got people. <laughs> I've got people. They're everywhere. It. it was, it's amazing. And I, you know, like I've really, learned, you know, we talk in like the autistic community about autistic space and the quality of company that you find when you're with other autistic folk and the sense of immediate ease and immediate fitting in. And to realise that all that time, the neurotypical people around me were feeling that ease when they met other neurotypical people. That was a that was an emotional hit for me to to understand that I just really needed the company of a of of the people like me, and that we immediately get on, we immediately understand each other. This huge respect flows between us based on understanding, based on commonality. And yeah, I it surprises me whenever I hit my nose up against someone who finds it controversial that I might want to call myself autistic. And it's like, yeah, you just you've never felt that need. You, you don't understand it. And that's fine. But when you feel like a stranger in a world when everyone else understands each other and you live 40 years of your life like that, you'd want it. You'd definitely of course, want it. it's empowering. It's empowering. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. As well as that community, you've obviously talked, you know, throughout all of your books about the need for solitude. It's something I very much understand. I crave it. I've never, and I say this uh, feeling extremely grateful, I've, I've never felt lonely, even when I lived on my own for years and years throughout my 20s. <laughs> I love my own company. I need it. I find social situations challenging mm-hmm. and I am drained when I've been around other people, I need to recalibrate and rest after I've been around a lot of people, which in my job can be it's a quite lot. Yeah, treacherous. you do that a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, and I've really only accepted it and honoured it. I'd say in my forties, where mm. I just understand that I need it and. Don't you just love being in your 40s? Isn't it awesome being in your 40s? Oh, it's fucking great. It's just really... People dread it. It's so good. It's It's the best. And a lot of my friends who are in their 50s are like, it gets better. (gasps) 50s like a whole other thing. (laughs) I know. I can't wait. There's no, no, you know, worry about getting older whatsoever. It's, It's all liberating. But I found it really interesting in your book Enchantment that having that understanding that you really need that time alone, but due to you... Having, you know, lots of big questions about awe and connection when writing this book led you to feel you needed an element of congregation, Mm. which is probably harder to find in this day and age. How did you go about it? And what was that that sense? You know, what was that feeling of needing congregation? Yeah. Do you know what? It's like it's a big question for me because I I think I feel a profound sense of interconnection with humanity but I can do that on my own. <laughs> like I can, I I can feel that in solitude and I feel it best in solitude actually because I find the presence of other people really noisy and it blocks out my thoughts. And when I'm 
alone, I can actually feel that connection much better. And I mean, I'm interested in the idea of congregation because it's not something that's ever particularly been in my life. Like I don't come from a religious background. I used to go to church with the brownies. That's like the limit of my experience. Um, but I'm, you know, it actually takes us back to the questions that we were talking about a, a few minutes ago about like how we can learn to be in disagreement and conflict with a group of people and still stay together. And I begin to wonder if congregations don't do that for us. You know, they're, they're not supposed to be a group of people who are all the same and who are united by anything other than like a common desire to worship. And I but they're shifting, you know, they're not permanent communities. We don't spend long with them every week. Like if, if you go to church, you spend like two hours on a Sunday with those people and then you disperse the rest of the week and come back together again. That seems to me to be a really positive way to gather, to, to be together, because it, it's deliberate and it is kind. And congregations actually do amazing work in our society. But my big question is, like, how do I do that without believing in God, you know, or a Christian God for sure? Like, it, I can't take part in those congregations because that, that fundamental belief doesn't draw me into them. And I, I explored it in different ways. Um, one of the ways was that I did join in an online Buddhist retreat run by this amazing group called the Zen Peacemakers, who are an American group. And they they were founded by a man called Bernie Glassman, who had some deep interests in social reform. And what they do is they come together to focus together on like a often a historical issue where injustice has happened so the the retreat I joined was on slavery they go to Auschwitz once a year and congregate there and and think really deeply about the suffering that happened in that place they run Native American retreats they run uh, homelessness retreats um, but they fully immerse themselves into moments of collective suffering and, and often moments of collective misunderstanding and of course the pandemic allowed me to do that because I could do it from my living room they started to run them online and it was a really extraordinary experience because what they what they walk into is to try and go into not knowing together so they try and abandon their knowledge at the door and work through a process of completely learning from scratch based on contact with people who have intimate experience of the issue that they're focusing on. And it was it was an incredible it was an incredible experience for me. It was deeply moving. It opened up reflective space, but in a very structured way. And it brought me into contact with how other people were thinking and feeling in a way that like it was very different to how I experienced that in everyday life. It was very unconstructed um and i i think there's room for some more congregations like that you know i think we uh we shouldn't abandon that now we're all coming back together in in real space because it's about gathering quite a dispersed community together and i yeah i'm I i've it. got some thoughts about that for neurodiversity for the future actually i would yes. i would love to create a congregation like that Oh, that's such a beautiful idea. I love that. Mm. I, I think it's it's really interesting what you just said as well, because it plays into our chat a moment ago about divisiveness, that we all really need to come to most situations saying, I don't know. 
I don't know because you know we've done we did a beautiful podcast episode with this amazing monk who sadly passed away uh, about a year ago now Bjorn Nathako Limblad um, who wrote a book called I May Be Wrong and that was a mantra given to him by his um, one of the monks that he was tutored by throughout his monastic life which was a long monastic life and even when he came out of living as a monk he always used that as a point of reference. I may be wrong. I may be wrong. But it's interesting that that, that was the focus of the congregation that you took part in. I think that's so interesting in learning and being around other people that might have, you know, very different lived experience or thought process. But you can all approach one topic together at a base level, saying, "I, I don't, I don't know." I think that's so interesting. Yeah, and. There's so much we don't know. and the, So much. The, uh, the gut response is to always like fake knowledge rather than to say, do you know what? I know nothing. I know nothing about this. I know the, you know, the barest skim of information about this. Tell me, I'm listening. And to do that in a group, to do that collectively is something that's incredibly powerful, I think. And I, yeah, I will, I will definitely be returning to that practice. It was. Oh, you must. I think that's so beautiful. And you also ask yourself a question in um, enchantment. You say, how do I speak to a God like mine? And you've already said, you know, much like my own background, I don't come from a religious family, but I definitely know I need some sort of spiritual framework just to keep me on the right track and guide me in the right way towards my values um and it is often you feel a bit untethered when there's no religious doctrine that you've got to follow these sort of set rules so how how have you established that if you're calling it non-religious prayer how have you established that communication with a god or something bigger (laughs) yeah something bigger yeah I mean I it's something I struggled with for a long time because actually you know, as I said, I used to go to church with the brownies. I loved going to church. Like the actual process of that was wonderful. But I, I'm really anti-authoritarian and I, I cannot cope with like people telling me what to think or believe. Like I'm, that's never going to be something I'm going to go with. But also, <laughs> I think that I, I'm actually suspicious of over-explained spiritual beliefs. Like I, I don't, think any of us know enough to create this very specific thing you know that says god thinks this and god is that but at the same time i feel that i sense something bigger than just me being there as an individual and so i i mean i think enchantment is my whole answer to that you know the the question is how do we enter into a flow with that how do we craft our attention so that we can feel that call and response between us and the world around us. And that's sometimes about other people. But for me, it's often also about the landscape and the the natural world around me. Um, And I think it's a practice. Like I get there through walking. I get there through swimming. I've meditated for many, many years. And I that has really changed for me over the years away from um, a set of like rules to follow 
to instead, as I've I've got more used to it, it's like a frequency I, I tune into when I sit down to meditate. It's a feeling that I'm like turning the dial until I get to. And I, you know, like I also get there through the arts, through poetry and books and, and the words of other people um, and through visual art, which I'm, you know, a huge fan of um, and through music and all of those things, all of those things together, like you can have this really scattered practice in the world and, and come to the same thing through loads of different ways. And like I used to think that that was a bit silly and embarrassing and I still do a bit as I'm talking to it now, like it goes against the grain for me to sit here and do this. And, and I, the, you know, one of the things that has improved between here and like the millennial self that I was talking about is I'm much more open-minded, you know, <laughs> but I'm meeting this yearning and I'm looking for my own fascination in the world around me. And every time I go looking for it, I find it. It's, it's right there waiting and I can enter a conversation with that object of my fascination that makes me feel small in a very big world. And that no longer scares me. That mm. now really comforts me. Same. Oh, I love it. I did a post on Instagram about it just this morning because the sea is the the one tool for me that always just totally um, just zaps me down like, honey, I shrunk the kids to a tiny speck <laughs> yes. of nothingness. And I yeah. love it. I'm like, oh, yeah. nothing really matters. You know, my perspective has <laughs> totally shifted in the sea. And just the notion that it's been there forever and that it's so bloody massive just massive. gives me that straight away. <laughs> but I love um, the process that you go through in enchantment because at the start, when you're talking about your own level of exhaustion, you're at a point where you can't even focus on reading a book, something that you take mm. great joy from. You're sort of stumbling yeah. through something that you used to absolutely love. Mm. Um but you've gone from that to a place like you just said where you're able to <laughs> cultivate these moments of awe. And I think that's mm. interesting because often we think, you know, awe should just arrive in our life like a bolt of lightning. But actually you're yes. saying you've got to be open-minded towards it. Yeah, yeah, you've got to go looking for it. And I mean, a, a few things about that because I think like we've exoticized awe. Like we think that awe can only be found in places that aren't home. You know, we've got to travel to a wonderful mountain to to feel that awe or the desert or, you know, like it's not it's not here. It's it's there and there is special and here isn't special. And I just don't I don't think that's true. I don't think it's desirable to, for us to think that way because that means it's inaccessible <laughs> and very separate for us. Um, and I, I think awe is a practice and I think it's like a a quality of contemplation and there is. You know, I could step just outside my front door and pick up a stone off of the garden and spend a bit of time thinking about how old that is, like how unfathomably old that thing is that I have got piles of on my front garden to try and control the weeds, you know, mm. and I can look up every night at the moon and that's it's kind of sorry I mean I said I'm gonna sound like a you know a student after their first 
hit but um <laughs> but wow we can see like whole planets from our back garden you can yeah. actually look into the galaxy at night uh, what <laughs> how do what? we forget that, will that? Never... how do we forget yeah, that yeah i know that will never ever not sort of surprise me and floor me at the same yeah. time and i think you know like you just said it does sound like you've just you know taken a big toke <laughs> but it is it is the simple stuff, isn't it? It's the simple stuff that's there for us. It's and there. all of these things and having the awareness that that level of awe is all mm. around us stops with the mundanity of what we think we've got to do each day and how we've yeah. got to plod through the day. I guess it goes back to right at the start of this conversation, being gentle with yourself and with time mm. and with nature and the world around you to spot all of this awe that is kind of everywhere but we're so distracted we're so distracted that's probably the main problem isn't it we are but also we're in our routines you know and like if if we don't stop to notice the moon life is just loading and unloading the dishwasher endlessly like that's, li- yes. <laughs> that's literally all it is but then then there's the moon in the sky at the night and I mean it, it's really interesting you talked about reading because I like, yeah, I, I lost my ability to read completely in the pandemic. It just, I didn't have the attention span. I didn't have the desire. I I couldn't engage with it. And when I came to reflect on that, I realised how much force had entered my relationship with reading and how much pressure had gone into it. So this thing that once felt like it opened the door to this whole world and, oh my God, it's amazing. Like there are books are you kidding me you know and I can find anything in there if I go looking for it had become like okay so I'm a writer and I really must make sure I keep up with this genre and that genre and people are sending me books to review and I really want to help so I've got to read that too and I I, oh I haven't covered the classics I must I you know I must make sure I've read this this and before you know it reading is no longer this extraordinary pleasure it's this horrible millstone around your neck of obligation yeah and I I really needed to to sort of shatter that horrible taint that had come into to my reading and go back to small pieces of pleasure again um and I found that a lot in poetry actually I think that's a, such poetry. a beautiful way but like one poem at a time not a whole book one poem one poem is a meal you don't need 50 poems like one a day is really great <laughs> yeah again but that rallies against the modern world and that we're meant to consume everything immediately and, and everything's quantifiable and it's it's a lovely rebellious act to go against the grain on that one I love it um God, we've covered so much, Catherine, <laughs> and I have loved this chat. It's been it's been so it's nice. Been Thank so you. so nice. And yeah, your books totally like they do for many people. They speak to me. They really speak to me, and they brought me so much <laughs> comfort and joy and um, and pleasure. So thank you so much for writing them and for being on Happy Place. Thank you so much. It has been a very happy place for me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think we should all make a point of looking at the moon tonight. It's a good old perspective shifter, that one. That's what I'm going to be doing anyway. Catherine, a huge thank you to you again for your time and energy. Catherine's gorgeous new book, Enchantment, Reawakening Wonder in an Exhausted Age, is out on March the 9th. 
And also, have you joined our Happy Place Book Club yet, by the way? We're on Instagram, at Happy Place Book Club, and you can sign up to our newsletter too. That's where you can discover loads of brilliant fiction and non-fiction reads that we'll be recommending. You can also come over to at Happy Place Official on Instagram and let us know what your favourite little moments of awe are. Oh, and if you haven't already, do listen to that episode with the late Bjorn Nathico Lindblad for more thoughts on that mantra, I may be wrong. It is a beautiful episode, one of my favourites ever, in fact. Until next week, a massive thank you again to Catherine, to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and to you lovely people for listening. Chat soon. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.